Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, to the table, Dallas, on this frigid, that's a good word for it, frigid, it's about 12 degrees, 12 to 14 degrees with a pretty wind up here in Old Town Louisville at the Mill Street House. We're glad that you braved the elements. We have a good full crowd today and wherever you're joining us around the world for this, the second week in our Read Like a Rabbi series in which we're putting down some principles, eight of them over the four weeks of January that we'll be using um, as we kind of work our way through the narratives of Scripture coming up throughout the rest of the year. So I want to begin by uh, taking a look, those of you who have your artifact, either in electronic form or print form, and hopefully if you don't have one, you can look on to somebody next to you. I want you to look. I've, I've typed a sentence at the very top center of the first page. Can you see it? Somebody, can you see it? Everybody see it? Who has it? All right, can somebody read that for us slowly? Out loud, and I want you to listen carefully and look if you want to at this sentence. By the way, if you want one now, some of you are going, No, where's my sheet? Anybody? All right, somebody read that for us slowly out loud. The band decided to band together to band the injured bird's wing just as a band of color appeared in the sky from the setting sun, providing a beautiful backdrop for their bands impromptu concert. All right, one more time, again, and listen carefully. The band decided to band together to band the injured bird's wing just as a band of color appeared from the sky from the setting sun, providing a beautiful backdrop for their band's impromptu concert. All right, I have a very simple question. I mean, it doesn't get... Luther, any easier than this question. You ready? What is the meaning of the word band in this sentence? <laughs> yes. There's three different meanings. At no, least three. So take a look at it. At least three different. What do you what do you get? Somebody pick one. A group of musicians. Yeah, a group of musicians. So we think of a band. And it's a noun. As a group of, and that's a a noun, okay. What else do we have? A band of people. A group of people. You also have a band. You can think of it as a group of, generally speaking, a group of people. Stabilize. Yeah, you're banding together to get to stabilize the birds. Yeah, I'm mixing two. The bird is to to treat the bird, bandage the bird. Yes. But then band together is is to group together as a verb. Yes. Are we having fun yet? Well, there's a band of color. And a band of color. Which is like a banner. Okay. I was thinking a strip of color. A strip or a banner. Now, all of that says ask then this question, okay? What does this illustrate about how difficult it is potentially to understand a language or understand a sentence, you know, something like this just pulled completely out of any kind of a context? What does it illustrate? Well, maybe I just gave you one answer there. What does it illustrate for us, the challenge before us, as we look at an ancient text or any text or any conversation? What does it illustrate? Some of the things. And it's a dead language. <laughs> okay, so we have a language, for instance, where the, langu- the Hebrew that's spoken today is vastly different than the Hebrew spoken or written and spoken back then, not to mention Greek. Koine Greek is very different than modern Greek. In fact, there's very little similarity to those two. All right. Context is everything. Okay. That's good. So we have challenges with a with a context. Okay. What else? What else does it illustrate? Multiple meanings for that word. I love it. Exactly. That one word, just one simple word, could have a multitude of different meanings. And unless you understand it within the context of how it's being written, you will miss what we call the authorial intent. Author, authorial intent. Somebody on Thursday night, share with us, what's authorial intent? 
Somebody who's been here on a Thursday night, we defined it like a week ago. It's the intent of the author. <laughs> you can't use the same words to define this. <laughs> what the author yes. means. Yeah, you got it. You, we understand. Trying to communicate. The author has something they are trying to communicate. And only they really have privileged knowledge to what that is. Our job is then to try to take the context, all the clues, and then try to do the best that we can to interpret it, right? Because every word, almost every word, has a broader semantic field than the single meaning that specific context plays a key role in defining the message. So I want you to think of it this way, very simply. Every text is contingent on and is made up of single words whose context is the whole sentence, whose context is the whole paragraph, whose context is the entire chapter, whose context is a group of chapters, whose context is the entire book, and then when we talk about the scriptures, whose content is also part of the greater library, which is, I think, a better way to think of the scriptures, a library, a compendium, all of those have to line up for us to make proper interpretive decisions. The challenge is we have gaps. We have gaps in our ability to do that. And so I'm going to give you a few, and let's see if you can determine just from the wording what these gaps may be. And if you have the artifact at the bottom of the first page, I gave you a section that said other examples. You might use that for these gaps. Yeah. Just could you give like a little bit of color on what you mean by gaps? I'm not looking for like a precise definition, but just a little. Color. Yeah. So. Um, Gap as in a distance between the original writing and where we are today. Okay. But it, it's evidenced in several different ways. And when I give you the names, I think it'll kind of all come together. Okay. All right? So the first one we have, I might suggest, is a chronological gap. A chronological gap between where we are and when the scripture was written, right? So how does that affect, potentially, how we look at an ancient text like the scriptures? We have a chronological gap. That's a time gap, right? How does that affect us? We didn't live in this time period. We don't live in that time period. We're not familiar with the, the phraseology. Like there's an example in um, Genesis chapter 15 in Hebrew, which um, our Hebrew professor used to give us to just like throw us crazy because um, in the offering that Abraham was uh, directed to give, when God gave him the first promise of his descendants, he was to take a, quote, triangular heifer. <laughs> we have no, I have no, I've got nothing. I mean, we could probably overlay some ideas, triangle, trinity, but that doesn't fit the First, Testament, first Testament narrative at all. Right? So chronology makes sense, yeah? I was going to say technology or lack of technology is, is a completely different thing. Whether something like you just said existed or didn't exist. Yeah. And even culturally how somebody would go about doing a task that we would go about doing it right. different because of having technology now. Yeah. So And making probably parallels in life a parable being something but if historically, chronologically, right. someone is accustomed to doing some sort of procedure you know, that we don't even have sure. knowledge of. Sure. Um, and you hit on one. The next one, which is a... How about just a three-year-old? Could be. Could be. Yeah, but, see, but again, that's a challenge. We have to sit there and try to figure out, right, what's happening there, because there's a huge time gap. None of us, like, does offerings like that and makes no sense, I don't think. Not legally. Not legally. <laughs> but you mentioned something else. You used the word cultural. I think there is a cultural gap. Well, and, and even a chronological gap between like sure. us old folks that uh -huh. you know are technically challenged as opposed to the millennials that everything is I mean, they're attached to their computer practically, you know. Yep. So yep. I mean, that's a great that's a great example in that, I mean, even just in one generation yeah. or two, or two. We, we see the world so differently. Yeah, and the perfect example I gave, I forget who I was talking to, um, about, oh, I was talking with you guys about uh, when we were growing up, 
like we're the skateboard generation or before, and we were we talk about when you're going along and you ate it, <laughs> you went face first into the ground. Now that this generation doesn't use ate it that way, it's like there was some. I was I was listening to somebody and they said to somebody who had just gotten their haircut, "Boy, you you ate that haircut." <laughs> what? Yeah. What? No, that's that means like you 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 wear it really well. I'm like that's completely different than and I'm not that old. David, I've said things. All right, hold on, hold on. I've said things which in our generation. Yeah. I mean, we are in the same generation. Yeah. Um, where my kids have told me, like, Dad, you can't, you can't say that. Yeah, you can't yeah, say that. Exactly. Like, so when Paul <laughs> writes in 1 Corinthians 13 about our love sounding like a clanging symbol, we don't have the cultural, if you're not there and understanding what was happening in the worship in those pagan temples and all of that piece, right? So there's that gap. There's a geographical gap. Well, how does that affect things, potentially, in an ancient text? Geographical. <laughs> I love the, the passages that say they came from the four corners of the earth. Okay. It's in several, several yes. in the Old Testament. Yeah. How else do you we see that? I think that, well, the Bible just told me it was over here in this place, and suddenly we we're over here in this yeah. other place. Yeah. So it's not really true. They just made up the... Exactly. You know, it, that we're in the land of the Philistines. Okay. That doesn't really... I mean, I know it's over there somewhere in modern Palestine, Iraq, Iran, Turkey area, right? So we don't always see that. There's a semantic gap. Somebody mentioned that about dead languages. Like, so you have it written in a language that's foreign to us, but it's also one that has changed dramatically and no one really speaks it. And so um, you're just kind of, You're not really guessing, but you're using, you know, history and things to go with it. There's a literary gap Meaning that we don't always recognize, because of the semantic gap, when a change is being made in the, the type of language being used. Is it a narrative? Is it a parable? Is it a riddle? We miss parallelisms if we don't learn to read this way that, that we might otherwise miss because we just read it and we don't even think about the fact that there is that potential literary, gift, uh, literary gap um, and subtleties of irony and sarcasm and cynicism and quotations and so forth, all those kinds of things. And I would also suggest, and here's one that I think is probably the one that is most perilous to us, is we have a bias gap. We read text in a way that matches, or hopefully is, what's the word? Um, in, in, uh, that makes us comfortable with how we want to view God or a piece of theology. Synonymous. Synonymous, thank you. Thank you. Do you understand? So we have all of these... Now, they're not... Um, it is possible to overcome them. But we have to first be aware of them. All right? And so last week when we talked about um, how we're going to overcome some of these challenges... I introduced this idea that we need to read like a rabbi. In other words, we need to be able to take the text and step back and use some principles. That's what I'm calling them. They're not laws because they're, they're flexible. But they're principles of interpretation. Last week we looked at what was called inner biblical interpretation, meaning the Bible is often um, the best interpreter of Scripture. Like, if you want to know what Scripture means, you would first look to where other pieces of Scripture um, help clarify something that you've, you've read. And then we also talked about the importance of recognizing the Bible's literary diversity. So those are the first two principles, right? The Bible often interprets itself, often interprets itself that's inner biblical interpretation, and then we need to recognize the Bible's literary diversity. And as we've been talking about this morning, the third principle, which we've been discussing already by our illustration, is that words, number three, and it's the first on the top of your page there, words often have multiple meanings. And I want to illustrate this and have you guys help me understand <coughs> these words. All right, so first of all, I need someone to get Exodus chapter 20, 9 and 10. Can somebody do that? Somebody, if you'll take it, just raise your hand. 
Exodus 20, 9 and 10? Yes, you got that one? I yes. need someone for Genesis 1, 14. Somebody just say you'll take it and go find it. All right, you got Genesis 1, 14. Genesis 19, 24. All right, you got that one. Finally, Genesis 1 and verse 5. We'll take that. All right, so we're going to go here in order. So the Hebrew word for day, the basic Hebrew word for day is yom. Y O M. And it's there in front of you. It has a wide semantic field in the Torah. Um, and we can understand its specific meaning only by looking at the context in which the word appears. So we're going to do some of that together. All right? So in Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 10, Saji has that one. He's going to read it out loud for us. And we're going to be listening for how would we define the word day in this text. Yom. Exodus 20, 9 to 10. Yes. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. All right, so we're all biblical interpreters. You're going around and you're, uh, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And you made it here to Exodus chapter 20. It's about right, 14 days into the new year. You should be around Exodus chapter 20. How would we define and understand Yom here? Day is what? 24 hours. Yeah, a sun cycle, a day cycle. Some would say a 24-hour period. I think that's, those are all excellent, right? Based on the context of what he's talking about, we know a little bit about it be better if we were reading the whole chapter, but we don't have time for that. But basically, we understand this is a 24-hour day. 24-hour period. Say again? Maybe 24 hours. This goes back to like reading yeah. through our bias. Like, Correct. Was it broken up into 20? Yeah. So somehow, like a cycle of the sun goes up and the sun goes down, it comes back up, right? That's a day. Yeah, because how they would understand the day. We say 24-hour period. That is bias. I haven't thought about it, but it is, because... Not every culture thinks of a day as 24 hours. Yeah. Could Sunrising. be some portion of it. Could be. All right. Second one is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. Who's got that one? All right, Mike. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will mark events, sacred seasons, days, and years. So what's the meaning of day? Yom. In this particular one, is it different? The same? Yeah, when you see the sun, it's like the middle, and the sky being bright. There's two meanings. Yeah. So we got we got a double meaning, for sure. It's used two different ways potentially, right? One of which is the daylight hours, like the sun being what illuminates, so you can see during the daytime. And what's the other usage? David, you said there were two. Yeah. Uh, I mean it's. Some kind of a season or period undetermined, potentially. What popped into my mind was the days of our lives. You know, I mean that just popped into my mind. Yeah. Because, because it's like general. Yes. General. Got it. For sure. General hospital. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> How about Genesis nineteen? Go ahead. I was just going to add uh, historical reference. Yeah. For that last part. Uh -huh. We will mark events, sacred seasons, days, and history. So when you look back, you right. this history of... Yeah. Back in the day, we would say, right? Back in the day. Good. Excellent. How about Genesis 19.24? Who's got that one? You got a movie here. And the Lord rained down burning asphalt from the sky unto Sodom and Gomorrah. Sorry, maybe it'd be 23 first then. Sorry. Okay. As the sun rose over the earth, Lot arrived in Zor, and the Lord rained down burning asphalt from the skies onto Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, so what's the meaning of day here? As the sun rose over the earth, that's the yom, that's the word yom, that's how they translate it there. As the sun rose over the earth, Lot arrived in Zoar. What's the usage of it there? It happened in the morning. Okay, you're getting there. Good. A specific date and time. A specific date or point in time. 
Different usage there. All right, Genesis 1, verse 5. Sorry, that's me. Um, God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. All right, what are the meanings of both usages of the word day here the same? You're welcome. Okay, so that's the hours that we have light. That's the first usage. What's the next one? Picked a little bit of like, origin. Season. Yeah. Okay, a season. I see a beginning. Origin. The origins. Yeah. You see what we have here? I just picked four. And there are other there are other ways, right? Um, it can mean in Hebrew it can mean an unspecified period of time, a season, an error, an era, or even in reference to a festival, or generally speaking, the day of the Lord. Right? So we have multiple usages to try to understand exactly what's happening. All right? So let's look at one Greek word, and then we'll move on to our second one. Sozo is the Greek word for salvation. Somebody, Ephesians 2 and verse 8. We'll do that one. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Some of you may know by memory. Just somebody pick one. Raise your hand. Okay, Chris has got 2, 8. Who's got Matthew 9, 21, and 22? All right, Ryan's got that. One more, oh, two more. Matthew 8. 25, we'll take that one. Matthew 8, 25, all right. And Acts 27, 20. We'll take that one. Acts 27, 20. All right, got it. All right, let's go back. So the he, the Greek word for salvation, um, the same principle applies from the Second Testament as the first. The Greek word sozo can mean salvation and or usually it can be translated as preservation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is a gift, is God's gift. It's not something you possess. What's the meaning of sozo here? How do we interpret it? Generally speaking, how would we interpret this? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been sozo. You have been saved. Like snatched from something danger, like plucked yeah. or preserved. Saved from danger. We usually connect it with eternal life or something related to relationship with God, right? Good. But in other instances, the same word sozo has a completely different meaning. Matthew chapter 9, 21 and 22. Who's got that one? She thought, if only I touch his robe, I'll be healed. When Jesus turned and saw her, he said, Be encouraged, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that time on. So the word healed is the translation of the Greek word sozo. Huh? Same word we just read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By faith, you receive salvation is now different. How will we understand this one? Restore? Okay, restore. Better than that. I mean, if I just touch your robe, you will be made whole. Physical healing. You can use it to describe someone who is being physically healed. What about Matthew chapter 8, verse 25? Who has that? They came and woke him, saying, Lord, rescue us. We're going to drown. Which word do you think is the translation of sozo in that one? Save from not dying. <laughs> yeah, so rescue, right? How would you define it? Like a deliverance from some kind of danger. Like save us, sozo us. Now imagine if we interpreted each one of these by just picking one definition and saying sozo means this. What would that do to our interpretive, how would that affect our interpretation of a text? Meaning if we have one. If you just say, pick one. It'd be very or by grace you have yeah. been physically healed. Or by by grace you have been yeah. saved from your immediate danger. You see how it changes? Yeah. It's important that we understand. How about Acts 27 and verse 20? But neither the sun nor the moon appeared for many days, and the rangy storm continued to pound us. All hope of our being saved from this peril faded. So saved, again, there is sozo, slightly different meaning. 
how might we determine it? How might we answer it here? Rescued out of a dangerous situation. Yeah. yeah, their lives are being preserved. It may not be an immediate danger. It's like it just keeps going and going and going, right? But ultimately, we fear that we would never be saved. So it's important that we recognize, and there's a principle here, that we have to make sure that we identify every time we're digging into a text is words often have multiple meanings. And we have to pay attention to that and pay attention to the context in which we're reading. And that's not, we've noticed this, that's not just, we illustrated with English, right? Imagine how much more important it is. Like, we didn't get that interpretation wrong in English because we were used to it. We're used to that kind of usage. But in ancient texts, we may not. All right? All right, and then our fourth principle, and we have, we're doing okay on time here is to strive to understand the author's original intent. We touched on that just earlier. Authorial intent. It is critical. Like, for instance, those of you who were with us on Thursday nights, we've spent quite a bit of time in the last two Thursdays introducing the book of Exodus and focusing on making sure that we understand the authorial intent. Is it intended to be history? Is it intended to be something else? And, oh, by the way, who is the author? Like, not just, like, is it Moses or a group of scribes, but when we're talking about Scripture, we have a bigger question or a bigger consideration. If all Scripture is inspired by God, then technically we could say the author is God speaking through either people who are in a trance who write down whatever he said, if you believe in that, or who through their personalities that God uses to write these words, right? And in the book of Exodus, one of the things we're keying in on is the author's intent is not to highlight Moses or to pay attention to Pharaoh or any of those are all sidelined. The whole purpose behind Exodus is to tell the story of why God chose to deliver a people. Just a random group of people who had no reason whatsoever to be chosen by God. And yet they were. Okay, so authorial intent, trying to determine that. The challenge with that is that we, well, we start here. We talk often at the table that the text cannot mean to us what it did not first mean to the original hearer. Right? We understand that, right? We can't have an interpretation that would be at odds with what someone, the original hearers, would have understood, right? So the question then is, who gets the prerogative to determine the meaning of a text? That's like the $200 billion dollar question. Who's in charge of the church? I do. David, yeah. I just like want to insert here to just, in general, like, it, it's hitting me, like maybe it's hitting everyone else, what a game changer conceptually this is in, in just reading scripture, because some of us who were raised with, you know, the Bible is the literal word of God, and, and the fact that if you would question it being anything other than literally what it said, that it would be blasphemous of you to question that. And when people cherry pick verses, you know, and throw it out, like you pull something from Leviticus, you know, and somebody's trying to go, see, you don't obey all those rules, right. so the why? The tattoo, for instance, Yeah, it, uh, you know, and, and pulling that just completely out of context, this gives us the framework to apply to absolutely everything to really, really know what the true intent was and what God's word is supposed to mean to us instead of just this arbitrary, well, that's, you know, in 2024 today, I read it, that's what I think it means literally, and so any other interpretation, you know, is wrong kind of thing. So this is... Well, I'm glad you're this, seeing that because yeah, that's... a big deal. This is we're deep. often people who... <laughs> When we do what we're doing, and you engage with people who are in more traditional settings, who grew up in different settings, um, they would say, oh, you're kind of, this is, this is what they say in theology, you're weak on the inspiration of scripture. You, you really are treating scripture with the sacredness that you offer. And I would argue it's exactly the opposite, because you're treating it 
with it the reverence it deserves to say, I, I didn't write it. It wasn't written to me, but it's for me. So I have to take a step back and do the best. We're never going to be perfect. And we're allowed to have differing opinions of it, but the idea is we use these principles, right, because we believe that this is the sacred scriptures, and to just sit there and go, well, Leviticus says you should not have any tattoos on your body, <laughs> go, okay, so why? And, and my answer is God knew we were going to have these frustrations, so, you know, I think he's writing... Maybe something for this person is who's interpreting it and something for this person who is interpreting it the way that they need to interpret it to get closer to God. Which is an interesting statement because it, I, I, you don't realize what you've just done, but you've perfectly set me up. It's like you teed up the next... Well done. You teed up because um, it goes back to the question I just asked. Who gets the prerogative of determining the meaning of the text? The author or the reader? And you just said teed up. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, all right. I should have said that. That's right. You've got to understand it in our cultural context. Right? Yeah, so who? Answer the question. Who gets the prerogative of determining, determining the meaning? The author or the reader? Yes. Now, that sounds so simple. But listen to what's happening in our culture. And you recognize that there's a whole field of study called deconstructionism or textual criticism that basically says, well, it's up to the reader to decide. And so we end up with two different things. So I'm going to give you two words. These are big theology words that you're going to want to write down there somewhere on that sheet. Um, because these are just, they're already there for you. Um, they're already there for us. We're either going to eisegete so that's eisegesis, that's the, the process of E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. We're either going to eisegete the passage or we're going to exegete the passage. Those are the two options. So an eisegete is the process of interpreting where you, the reader, determine how this text applies to you or was written to you. In other words, you're, you're viewing it as this was written to me. This is how I'm going to understand it. Versus exegesis, which is an attempt to interpret based on the context to understand what the author intended. And I'm going to give you, I want to give you an example here. I'm going to let you take a minute, each individually, because I promise you, you know how to do this. And you might do it naturally. Um, and I'm not suggesting it's wrong, but we need to pay attention to it, all right? So I've given you a couple of textual examples. The first one is Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. Somebody read that for us. Can somebody find Deuteronomy 31 verse 6? Who will do that for me? Somebody look that up for me. I should give you It's on the paper. It's on the paper. Somebody read it. Sorry, thank you. I knew I put it there. Go ahead. Somebody read it out loud. Be strong, be fearless, don't be afraid, and don't be scared by your enemies, because the Lord your God is the one who marches with you. He won't let you down, and he won't abandon you. All right, so take a moment. You're the reader. You're isogeting. You're reading from your own perspective. How might you translate it? Give yourself a second here. I should attack my enemy right now because God is telling me he's going to march with us and I shouldn't be scared by the enemy, so I'm going to go on the offensive and make a big attack right now. Okay. This is concerning, Peter. That's concerning. <laughs> yeah, Mike, go ahead. I can't lose. I can't lose. Yeah. What else? I'm, I'm going a whole different direction. Sure. It feels like for ice. Are we on ice Jesus? Yeah. What, how you, yeah. Yeah. Okay, if I'm thinking of what this says I should or shouldn't do. It seems more like <clears throat> I don't really have big enemies come and attacking me every day. So I'm thinking more a lot like my boss at work or whatever in a, a frustrating situation I'm in. Um, keep your spirits up because God's going to get you through it somehow. Okay. And Let's go ahead into it. And you won't be harmed. And you won't be harmed. I can't lose. I'm going to defeat the enemy. All of those. Um, any ch is there any ch problem with that? 
Yeah. You can lose. <laughs> you might need to be afraid. Be very afraid. Or, or whatever. The, I mean, I'm not picking on that one word. But what are the dangers of reading the text primarily this way? When I worked for a church, I had a pastor tell me it's really hard when you read scriptures like this and are interpreting it with your life because if you're fighting with a coworker and you're both pastors, God is on both of your sides. <laughs> I thought about that. Or a husband and wife in a relational challenge, like, I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to be victorious. It's kind of equating this with reading your daily horoscope. <laughs> it does. I hadn't thought about it. It feels a little horoscopic, like because you're reading, you're going, "Oh, that's speaking to me." This doesn't say you won't lose, though. Throw that out. Throw that out. Throw that out. Somebody read the read the text one more time. Be strong, be fearless, and don't be afraid, and don't be scared by your enemies, because the Lord your God is the one who marches with you. All right, so now pause. Think about who could tell me a little bit about the context of Deuteronomy here? <laughs> we are. We always are. But that's what we do. That's my point. This is Moses talking to the Israelites, the children of Israel, before they are going to be crossing the, I was supposed to say the Red River. No. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> 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 to, to conquer and, and get the land, you know, take the land that God promised them. So don't be afraid of them, specifically as a reference to the people who inhabit the land, because I have promised to deliver this land into your hands. You don't have to be afraid because I've already promised it to you. It's yours. In the context of being that storyline, for us to say, I have this enemy at work that I'm now going to defeat because I have the Lord on my side is, a, is dangerous territory. That's all I'm saying. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be encouraged by it by going, hey, if God was for them and you know he wants the best for me, all of that. But to take that and not define the them and the situation is dangerous. All right? Are we clear on that? Here's another good one. Proverbs, this one I love. Proverbs 13 and verse 24. Somebody read that out loud for us. Those who withhold the rod hate their children. So when we were growing up, my parents decided to do what? Yeah, so when we were growing up, there was a best-selling book, To Train Up a Child, last name was Pearl, and always this idea of if you spare the rod or if you hold back the rod, the definition of rod was always what? Yeah, a corporal punishment, some kind of a belting, a switch, a paddle, whatever. You got to spank the kid, right? This is how he defined it in the book. She defined it. Oh, wait now. A spank. This is how he said it. A spanking, whipping, paddling, switching, or belting is indispensable to the removal of guilt in your child. His or her very nature depends upon this kind of punishment. That is one person, and it was like, anybody else grew up in that world? It was like the gospel. So let's stop for a minute and think about the author's true intention. All right? And especially in the context of today. How might a rod be defined in the culture and time of David as opposed to, this is a cultural gap, as opposed to how we're, this is actually several things. It's a cultural gap, it's a semantic gap, it's several. Chronological gap. Are you thinking about like the way that they would, would sheep? Okay. The fact that, that, you know, a rod, something that you could guide more so, you know, not that you're inflicting pain or whatever, but that it's a boundary. <laughs> it's a boundary and it's a guidance. So the first thing you step the back in is you... would be like a shepherd yeah. using a rod with his sheep. 
So you recognize culturally it's a shepherd culture. We don't live in that shepherd culture, right? So the first thing we have to do is we know it's a shepherd, uh, shepherd culture, so that informs the interpretation of rod, as you said beautifully. A rod is something that a shepherd carries. What's the purpose of the rod? To fight off to predators. You fight off predators with it, and you use it then to guide. So there's never a sense in Hebrew thought that you would use a rod, that image, your rod and your strength, you know, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, language that Paul write, uh, that uh, David writes in Psalm 23. What? Your, your corporal punishment? Your beating of me gives me comfort? No. Your guide, you're, you're there, you're, 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 you're pushing away my enemies. That's what it's used for. It's, it's, it's not a weapon that you would use to beat a sheep or a child or anything like that. Now, don't hear me wrong. If you paddle your kids or whatever, it's fun. I'm, I'm not arguing that you don't have a right as a parent to do that piece. I'm just saying, don't take a text like this, rip torn and bleeding from its context, and say, here's the biblical mandate. We're supposed to spank our kids, because if we don't, we're not following the Bible. That's all I'm saying. What was the, what was the scripture reference to, uh, you were mentioning David just now? So the original is Proverbs 13, but also David says in Psalm 23 that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you translate rod as this tool that you use to spank and discipline a child, that doesn't bring comfort. And I love the way he said it, by the way. It was indispensable for the removal of guilt. How does that work? I never felt less guilty when I got when I got whooped on by my dad or my mom. I never thought it to take away guilt. It would put the fear. Yes. So essentially what I'm suggesting to you then, so what are, as we kind of wrap it up, so then what are the challenges that we encounter when we eisegete a passage before first exegeting a passage. Can you, can you ask a question more time? What are the challenges we face when we first eisegete a passage instead of exegeting a passage, which is what we should be doing? Um, if we've already decided what it means to us, we're going to be prejudiced in doing the exegesis and try to make our that interpretation match what we already feel. And there's your bias gap. Yeah. There's your bias gap. And by the way, if you turn around and you read that word consistently, which is something that the West, that's a Western idea, that words have to be consistent. We have to mean the same thing. So then you have that problem of what do we do with Psalm 23? If it's a rod that's a corrective, and that's what it is, then, we're, then we, have a, we have a problem. You can end up just confusing yourself. Okay. What else? But I think also it's very common to read scripture, be offended by it, and throw everything out. Like, um, this is no longer relevant to my life because the context doesn't match our circumstances today. But if you think about it, we haven't destroyed the meaning of that text at all from a parental point of view. Like, if you withhold your guiding hand from a child to train them in the way to go, You've done a disservice to them, right? It it carries maybe even a more important meaning when you say, "Hey, you know, you could be you could be a parent that every time your kid messes up and you you whip out the belt or whatever else, and you think, "Hey, I'm a good parent," when actually the scriptures are saying your job is to guide them, fight away the enemies when you have to, and guide them. That's your responsibility. That's much more challenging than the interpretation just about. You know, and by the way, we love, my dad used to, not my dad, but some people that I, I viewed as dad figures in my life would say that, well, you know, spare the rod. Like, we, like we all agreed with that. Like, that's the reason why they did what they did, is you didn't spank them when they were a kid. Okay, fine. Other challenges that go with them? It can mean scepter, so it's something a king uses to... Yeah, or ruling and reigning. Yeah. I was thinking about the effect that it could have on people around you when you're living your life based on your eisegesis of the scriptures, or 
or trying to share the scriptures with others. Yeah. True. So these are these are these are going to be principles that we're going to have to put in place for the rest. Well, not just the rest of this year. These are the foundations of how we're going to be approaching the text for this year. But I think it's deeper than that, right? This is the way that we ought to be interpreting the text each and every time we engage with the scriptures. So when we're doing Bible study on our own, how do we how do we exegesis the scripture? Uh, what tools can we use? Is there an exegesis mm -hmm. reference? <laughs> Say again. Is there an exegesis reference book or whatever you know that says in context this is what was going on? So probably the classic book on the topic is uh, the title. I think I'm right on the title. Title: um, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. I think is the title. Um, but basically, what you're uh, what you're asking for is difficult, Mike, because there's really not a shortcut to. But part of that is, um, one of the things I hope that we'll get, that I'm praying that every day that we'll get as a community, is the ability, by the time we get to the end of the year, we'll have these hooks that will help us identify the story, like where we are in the narrative, so that when you're looking at Psalms, the first thing you're thinking of is, okay, the literary genre Okay, so things like this are not promises, that absolutely, but they're saying, if you do these things, more than likely, this is what's going to happen, that's what we know about proverbial literature, then we're going to know the storyline that we're in, a, we're in a shepherd culture, so we're going to learn to interpret, okay, what would it have meant there? So you start putting these tools in place, there's no shortcut for it, but you have to stop and think those things first before you deal with, okay, so now... What am I to do with this text? You have to do this work first in order for you, because it's not written to us, but it's written for us. But you have to do that work. So it's really not a shortcut, but that's one book that um, is kind of a classic. Um, Pete Enns wrote one um, that's a little bit more modern that I like. It's called um, The Bible Tells Me So, in which he breaks down some of these, these ideas of, oh, well, you've just been told this. Well, is that actually what the Bible says? That'd probably be the one I would recommend. Like if you, um, if you really want to dig in, it's not a hard read. Pete Enns is really easy to read. I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that being willing, sorry, being willing to open up the things you've learned to unlearn them that you've talked about. You've got to be willing to take that step, or you'll never get to the next. That's true. Unlearning. Yeah. What else? Go ahead. Well, I mean, so. It would be great if all of us could buy a commentary every time we get, we're going through a Bible study a certain book. But the, the truth is, this is where our education matters and where it's helpful to have, I mean, this is why you invest a certain portion of your week to like study and, and to bring it here. It, just like, you know, any other specific, you know, education that you would be pursuing. I think it's interesting that two of our, our vision statements for the table is to not judge and to listen. And, you know, when I think about those two vision items that we have, I mean, the root of both is humility. And I think the problem a lot of times when we do exegesis and eisegesis is doing those two things requires a lot of humility. I mean, a lot of times you exegete something and you go like, I don't know what this means for me. And I may not know for the next 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, something that I love that we do here is we are Presbyterian Reformed, but we were those things with, with a modicum of humility in that like, we don't have it figured out. Mm -hmm. And there are these other traditions and people that may have insight. I think that's incredibly helpful. Yeah. I mean, look, there are things that Baptists get right. There are things that Reformed folks get right. Yeah. There are things that Pentecostals get right. And it's good to have, and I, I, I like the fact that, you know, all of you come from such a variety of backgrounds. And, then, and I mean, and frankly, David, I hate to like boost you up because it seems like an odd thing to do, but you're a good listening pastor. I mean, you, you have, you're earthed in a tradition but you have your ears open for whatever wisdom is. And I mean, we've got to that. Well, thank you. Um, the way we think about it in theologists is just 
you, you said two perfect words because you could tell you seminary trained because he, he hit these key words. So when you're eisegeting, you're putting yourself above the scripture. That's how we describe it. You're saying, I'm going to determine what this means. When you exegete, you're placing yourself beneath the scripture. You're humbling yourself and saying, there is a mean- the author had an intended meaning that I may or may not totally understand, but it's my responsibility to approach the text in that way. So that's a great way of thinking about it, being having the humility to then say, yeah, it shouldn't be easy. Remember, we're saying, we started last week by saying, why can't we read the Bible like an instruction manual? <laughs> Remember how I told you last week about the sum assembly required for my grill that took me three hours? Right? Why can't we read the Bible that way? It's because the temptation is, right, we're just going to overlay whatever we want it to say. And that means that we're not doing the work. We're not human. We're not being humble. We're not saying there's there's deeper there's a deeper sense in which I'm supposed to engage with something like this. So you're trying to teach us a middle way in between just taking it out of contents to mean whatever we want it to and going to seminary and correct ourselves having to learn correct. every Bible history right. before we correct. Can. So I'm just gonna I'm trying to give you eight basic principles that if you will keep them in mind. As you engage the text, it will help you in the job of exegeting properly. You never, you know, you're not seminary trained. I'm not expecting you to be, but I'm trying to teach you how to do this for yourself. And these eight principles are like core stuff that if you stop and you go, "Hey, I wonder what this means," take a look at those gaps. Take a look at the principles and go, "Okay, so apparently it's this, this, and that." And then when you pray for the illumination, for okay, what does that mean to me? You start with the exegesis and you work your way to the application to yourself. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.